John 6, 35 through 40. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, such a precious gift that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your perfect will, Father, that you have willed for the salvation of your people. And you have willed for that salvation to be accomplished in very specific ways. Lord, you've willed for that to be accomplished through the redeeming work of your Son. And you have willed for that to be accomplished through your people beholding that redeeming work and believing in your Son. Lord, I pray that you would allow that to come out this morning clearly and helpfully as we walk through this, this passage in John 6. May our hearts be encouraged and stirred, and not only up in faith to believe in you more fir firmly, but to live for you, Lord, and to live joyfully for you. Lord Jesus, we don't want to take those words for granted or uh, simply assume those words uh, are to having effect in our lives. We want your joy to be fulfilled in us. And so I pray that we would receive your teaching and believe in your teaching and spirit that you would come and fulfill in our hearts and fill our hearts with the very joy of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Or for those who are not able to be among us this morning, we do pray for them. Pray that you would bless them where they are, heal them from sickness and illness, or keep them safe on their traveling and bring them back to us to join the corporate fellowship of your people here at Oak Ridge. And um, Lord, for those who are hurting and mourning, we pray that you would comfort them. For those who are rejoicing in you, we pray that you would continue to help them rejoice in you and to seek your face. Lord, may all those who love you rejoice. May all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. We need you to accomplish that in our hearts. So we pray that you would do it this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the Father's will for those whom he's given to his son as it's revealed here in John 6. and um, I don't think that there's anything more settling um, or reassuring for the believer than to be reminded of what the Father has willed for us in His Son. Knowing that there is nothing in all creation, not even our own failures, our own sins, our own shortcomings, there is nothing in all creation that will ever make the Father alter or amend 
what he has willed and purposed to accomplish in the lives of his people. That is one of the most comforting realities that we are presented with in the scriptures, that there is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus or from the perfect and full redemption that the Father has willed and purposed for you to receive in Christ Jesus. It will be accomplished. That good work that God begins in your life, he will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus Because that is the Father's purpose, and that is His Son's reward. And not one part of that reward will be missing on the day of Christ's glory. The full array of what He has accomplished in redeeming a people for God's own possession will be put on display. And you, believer, you will be a part of that. You will be a part of that. So, the main focus of this passage is that will of our Father for our salvation, and that salvation ultimately will not fail. That's what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. Now, there are three things about the Father's will that are set before us in John 6, 37 to 40, and we've already seen two of them. I just want to go over them by way of summary so we're all on the same page. Uh, We noticed, first of all, last week, a general statement about the Father's will in John 6, 37 through 38. For Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now generally speaking, the Father's will, as it's revealed in these verses, involves two things. There are two things that he wills to happen according to verses 37 and 38. Number one, he wills for all of those whom he has given to his son to come to his son. Right? That is the effect of having been given to the son. We come. Right? All who are given to me will come to me. And today we're going to see that more fully explained for us in verse 40. What does it mean to come to the son? Well, that's what Jesus gives us more clearly and, and more fully, a more full description or fuller description in verse 40. So one thing that he wills is that those whom he gives to the Son come to the Son. But then secondly, he wills for the Son to receive everyone who comes to him. This is extremely comforting. Right, that all who are given will come, and when they come, under no circumstances is the Son permitted to reject them or cast them out. Say that again. All who are given to the Son will come. And when they come, under no circumstances is the Son permitted to reject them or cast them out. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter the color or the tone of your skin. It doesn't matter the sins that you've committed in your lifetime. If you are truly and sincerely coming to the Son, then the Son is bound by the will of His Father to receive you. He has to. Because that is His Father's will. And He will never cast you out. J.C. Ryle commented on these verses, and I thought they were so wonderful. I needed to share them with you. J.C. Ryle said, We have in these words abundant comfort 
for all fearful and faint-hearted believers. Are you ever fearful and faint-hearted as a believer? I mean, those of you who are never fearful and faint-hearted as a believer, I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> I, I think every day, if not most days, I wake up, I open my eyes and step out of bed fearful and faint-hearted. Maybe that's condemning myself. I'm just trying to be honest and open with you guys. This is the, the road the Lord's given me to walk down anyway. J.C. Ryle commented and said, We have, in these words, abundant comfort for all fearful and faint-hearted believers. Let such remember that if they come to Christ by faith, they have been given to Christ by the Father, and if given by the Father to Christ... It is the Father's will that they should never be cast away. And that's comforting. He goes on to say, let them lean back on this thought. That is, let them rest or, or repose themselves. Let them find solace in this thought when they are cast down and disquieted. It is the Father's will that I should not be lost. Beloved, that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. It means that you walk with God not according to what you see or what you don't see in yourself. Right? This is the faith of Abraham. Romans chapter 4. When he looked at his body, he recognized that his body was as good as dead. And the, and the womb of his wife was barren and was not going to be able to produce a child. But that did not let him or that didn't cause him to shrink back and away from his faith. That actually caused him to grow stronger in his faith and to give glory to God, believing that God was able to accomplish everything that he promised. So when you, as, when you as a believer find in yourself all the reasons why you think you're not worthy of the kingdom of God or all the reasons that your conscience may be uh, impacted in thinking that you don't belong to Christ, what you need to do in those moments is you need to attack that realization of the sinfulness of your sin with the truths of the gospel. You need to go on the offensive, not sit on the defensive and let it simply bombard you with those powerful and entrenching thoughts that you or demoralizing thoughts that you are somehow not a believer because you are a sinner. You need to go on the offense and you need to fight against that discouragement with the truth of Christ. I'm coming to Christ. I believe in Christ. I sincerely long for Jesus Christ to be lifted high and glorified and honored in my life. No, I'm not perfect at that. No, I don't fully do what the Lord's called me to do. But that's my desire and that's my ambition. And because I'm coming to him, he's promised he will never, ever cast me out. See, to walk with God, not according to what you see or don't see in yourself, but to walk with him according to his promises and the hope that he has declared to you in his son. That's, that's walking by faith and not by sight. That's what we're called to do. Very often, uh, Christians can be far too passive in that aspect of living the Christian life. So that's why I emphasize it again. So, that's the general statement about the Father's will. Now, those two aspects that are made known to us in verses 37 and 38 of what the Father wills, that, 
that he wills for his people to come to his son and he wills for his son never to cast them out. Those two aspects are more fully explained and unpacked for us in verses 39 and 40. And we saw last week in John 6, 39, uh, where, where Jesus is explaining more specifically the Father's will for his Son in relation to his people. So what is the Father's will for the Son in relation to the people? The focus is on what the Son is doing. John 6, 39, the Father's will for his Son is, as Jesus puts it, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Right? And so we find two things in that verse about what the, son, what the Father wills for the Son to do with those whom the Father has given him. Number one, the Father wants the Son and has called the Son to make sure that he loses nothing that the Father has put into his hands. Right? Which, yes, includes all of creation as we saw last week, but specifically in this context, that is talking about the people whom the Father has given to the Son. That those who are given to the Son, what does the Father expect the Son to do with them? He expects Him to make sure that He loses none of them, that He keeps them, preserves them. And then secondly, not only is He charged not to lose those whom the Father has given Him, but then He is charged by the Father, it is the will of His Father to make sure that on the last day, every single one of those people whom the Father has given Him is raised up in the resurrection of life and glory. So not casting them out with the rest of humanity that has refused to believe in him, but bringing them into the fullness of salvation that the Father has willed and prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Now, that's, that's what we went over last week. I just want to add one thought to what was shared in relation to that, that will of the Father for the Son. You know, the flow of thought in verse 39, I mean, you could go from 37 to 39, but especially the flow of thought in verse 39 requires belief in the doctrine of election and in the doctrine of perseverance, the preservation of the saints. These verses require belief in those two doctrines. They're connected. They're intimately connected. They go hand in hand. If the Father has chosen for some to, say, to be saved, then the Son and the Spirit and the Father are united in preserving them fully unto salvation. So the, just, just follow the train of thought here from verses 37 to 39. The Father has given a specific group of people to His Son. That group will come to His Son. So, so given is election. He's given them to the Son. That group will come to the Son, and what will the Son do with them when they come? He's going to preserve them. He's going to keep them. He's going to make sure that none of them are ever lost until the day of glory when He raises them up with the glory that He has secured for them through His own blood and proven by His resurrection. Now, just, just we know that not everyone is going to be raised up on that last day, don't we? Not everyone's going to be raised up to a resurrection of life, as John 5 puts it. There will be sinners who are eternally lost. Just as, or because in their lifetimes, they refused to come to the Son in order to be saved. So there are those who will not come to the Son, and there are those who will be eternally lost. 
So putting these two things together, there's only two options to explain these verses. Number one, either everyone is given to the Son equally. The entire mass of humanity is given to the Son equally, but for some reason the Son fails to accomplish the Father's will for them. Right. So, so whether that be uh, they never heard the gospel or their own willful disobedience to the gospel, something, something disrupts the Father's will for this people that God has given into the hands of His Son. It's either that He gives everyone into His Son's hand and, and some of them are lost for some reason, or not everyone is given to the Son, but those who are given to the Son are secure in the Son's hands. So you can't be both. If the Father gives these people to the hands of His Son in order that the Son would save and preserve them, and not everyone at the end of time will be saved and preserved, then what does that necessitate? That requires that we, we understand that not everyone is given into the hand of the Son in order to be saved. That's, that's the flow of logic here. And you, and you need to see that. These, these doctrines of election, these doctrines of preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, these aren't just nifty doctrines that someone pulled out of their hat one time long ago. These weren't just developments that someone thought would be good for the church to believe in. These were derived from the very teachings of Scripture. That's why, that's why Charles Spurgeon called Calvin, uh, didn't call Calvinism Calvinism. He called it biblical Christianity. Because this is where these doctrines come from, from the Bible. So this is why it's impossible for a true child of God ever to fall away from Christ and be lost. Because his or her salvation is not depending on his or her will to be saved or willingness to be saved. Or their ability to hold fast to Jesus. Their salvation is entirely dependent upon Jesus' own faithfulness. And his commitment to hold on to them in order to fulfill his Father's will. That's the bedrock of all of our assurance and confidence that if we have come to Christ, if we have seen the reality of Christ and believe in him, then in the end we will be saved. Because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on Christ. Yeah, amen. Amen, to, amen back to some of you out there. So this is, the will, this is the Father's will for his people in relation to his Son. Now the last thing we want to notice about the Father's will in this passage is in verse 40, which is uh, the Father's will in relation to his people. Right? So verse 39 is the Father's will in relation to his Son. Verse 40 is the Father's will in relation to his people. What does the Father will for his people to do in response to the Son. Well, we find in verse 40, first of all, that the ultimate goal of the Father for this group of people is the same as was stated in verse 39. So there's not a different end point. There's not a different goal. right? Verse 39 says that it's the Father's will for His Son to keep and to raise up to eternal life everyone whom the Father has given Him. Well, verse 40 simply reemphasizes that. It says that it's the Father's will for them to receive eternal life and to be raised up on the last day. So both of these verses are affirming that ultimately the Father's will for this people given to His Son is that they would be eternally saved. But verse 39 
focuses in on the son's responsibility to save those people. Verse 40 emphasizes the response of the people to the son by which they will be saved. So verse 39 tells us how the son is going to save them. Verse 40 tells us how the people are going to respond to the son in order to be saved. It may seem a little complex there. It's really important. We'll get into that now in just a second. I think it's important to see this, that yes, the Father has absolutely, sovereignly determined to save a people for his own possession. And he has commissioned his Son to ensure that that will come to pass. He will save them. The Son will secure their salvation. They will be raised up on the last day. That is absolute sovereign decree right there. He's decreed it's going to happen. He's going to make sure it happens. But what we find in verse 40 is that the Father wills for that to happen in a very specific way. He wills for His Son to save them but they are going to be brought to salvation by seeing the Son and by believing in the Son. So it's not as though the Father says, Son, go save them, and they are just automatically zapped and saved and brought to salvation. There is a means by which God's chosen people come to salvation. And that means is beholding the Son and believing in the Son. That's the point. Right, so, so this is what has made some people refer to verses 39 and 40 as, as, as verse 39 focuses on the divine authority and power in saving God's people. And verse 40 focuses on the human responsibility for being saved. So verse 39, Jesus will save them. Verse 40, they will be saved when they look and believe. Now, just, just an application here. This... A brief application before we move on. In verse 40, we find the essence of the demands of the gospel. What is required for someone to be saved? What is the command of the gospel? What, what is a person, how is a person to respond to that gospel if they are going to come to salvation? Well, we find that very clearly listed here, right? They've got to see, or they have to behold the Son, and they have to believe in what they see, or behold. They have to believe in Him. And we're going to unpack what it means to see and what it means to believe in just a second. But what I want to emphasize here at the beginning is that if you would have eternal life, then you must set your eyes upon Jesus Christ, the Son. There's nowhere else to look. There's, there's nothing else to find. The Father has revealed to us the clear way of salvation. And it's in Jesus Christ, His Son. If you would be saved, you must fix your eyes upon the Son and upon everything that the Father has revealed to us in His Son. And then you must believe. You must believe in the Son as the Father has revealed Him to us. Not as we might want him to be. But submitting to the revelation of God given to us in the person, Jesus Christ. That is the means of salvation. And practically speaking, 
That really simplifies this whole discussion of election on a personal level. Yes, the father has given a specific group of people to his son, and yes, the son will, by his almighty sovereign power, ensure that none of them are lost. But from our perspective, how are we going to know who is and is not among God's elect people? Or for your own sake, how are you going to know whether you are a part of those people whom the Father has given to His Son? How are you going to know? By peering into the eternal decree of God and trying to find your name written on the Lamb's book of life? Is that how you're going to do that? Is that the only way that you can get assurance and know for certain whether or not you are among the elect? No, absolutely not. Jesus tells us here in John 6.40 how we can know that we are among the elect. The question is simply this. For examining your own soul, am I among the elect? Here are the two questions. When you look at the Son, what do you see? And number two, do you believe in Him? Do you behold His glory in such a, a rapturous way that it just takes over your soul and mind? And in the words of Colossians 2.8, you find yourself taken captive by Him. Where He's dominated your mind, He's owned your heart, and you know that from now on, because of the truth that you see in Jesus, your life can never go back to being about you. It must all be about Jesus Christ. You see Him, and then you believe. You believe, you respond in faith, in active trust in what you see. That is how we're going to discern whether or not we're among the elect. And I love the words of John Calvin on this verse. For this, for this purpose, that it settles for us this very test as to how we can know whether, whether we are among the elect or not. So John Calvin says of this verse, The way to obtain salvation is to obey the gospel of Christ. Profound, right? Never heard anybody say that. No, it's all over the Bible. If you want to be saved, you obey the demands of the gospel, which are to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus for salvation. Let go of all your worldly pursuits and lust and pleasures, and you seek holiness in the name of Christ. You run to Him so that His blood would cover you. You seek Him for forgiveness. You submit your life to him as king. John Calvin says, The way to obtain salvation is to obey the gospel of Christ, not to speculate about or focus on the mysteries of predestination. He says, To every man, therefore, his faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. In other words, what is, what is the infallible evidence that a person is truly among the elect. John Calvin would say is that they have faith in Christ. True belief in the saving Lord. So our assurance of salvation and being among the elect must be based on these two simple questions. When I look at the Son, what do I see in Him? And then number two, how do I respond to what I see? Do I believe or not? Now, with that said, let's look at what it means to see and what it means to believe in the Son, okay? What does it mean to see the Son? 
I've already kind of hinted at this, but let me just mention a couple of things before we begin to unpack what it does mean. Let me mention a couple of things that it doesn't mean, or at least one thing it doesn't mean. We can say for certain that beholding the Son or seeing the Son does not mean simply seeing Jesus with our physical eyes. It doesn't mean simply seeing Jesus with our physical eyes, or I might say, it doesn't mean simply hearing the truth about Jesus with our physical ears, or reading that truth with our physical eyes, or even having it planted in our physical minds. That's not what it means to see Jesus. And we know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Jesus says very clearly in John 3.36 that this unbelieving crowd saw him. They saw him with, with what eyes? With their physical eyes. Now in verse 40 it says those who see the Son and believe will be saved. What kind of sight? What kind of, what kind of perception is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about physical perception merely because he looks at this crowd that had physically seen him and says they were still not believing. So if the means that the father has appointed so if if this means the father has oh my goodness so if the means that the father has appointed to save his elect people is through them seeing his son unto believing then seeing the son must mean something different than merely seeing him with our physical eyes. Now we also know this because we also know that seeing the son is not about seeing with your physical eyes because If that were the case, then no one would be able to be saved since Christ's ascension into heaven. Right? Jesus says in John 16, 16, that there's a real sense that when he ascended to the Father, his disciples would see him no longer. Now, yes, there's a sense in which they would still see him. That was through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But physically seeing him with their eyes, when Jesus ascended to the Father, the disciples would no longer see him with their physical eyes. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, he tells us that right now, people are being saved in spite of the fact that they don't physically see Jesus with their eyes. He says, whom you love, though you have not seen. So we know that seeing Jesus in John 40 is not talking about seeing him with our physical eyes. And so what then does it mean for God's people to see the Son? Well, to use the words or to borrow words from John 1.14, to see the Son means that you behold His glory in your seeing. To see the Son means that you perceive the glory of the Son in your seeing. It means more than just beholding something with the eye. It means truly beholding Christ as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And beholding that truth about Christ with what Ephesians 1.18 calls the eyes of your heart. That there's this spiritual perception that you are awakened in your heart to recognize the truth about Christ that those who could only see Him with physical eyes could never discern. I love F.F. Bruce put it perfectly in his commentary on John. He said, seeing the Son means having that divinely imparted vision 
which discerns the glory of God in the Word became, become flesh. To see the Son is to have this divinely imparted vision that enables you to discern the truth about Jesus. Now, not everybody is able to see Jesus like that, are they? Not even those who sit under some of the greatest and most powerful preaching in, in the world. Not even all of them come to see Jesus truly with an ability to perceive the reality of his glory. There are many who experienced Jesus' teaching and miracles at that time of Jesus' life who did not truly see the Son in the way that uh, Ephesians 1.18 would describe it, or the way that John 1.14 would say. And many people today who are well acquainted with the Word of God and who know the facts of the Gospel, but still do not see the glory of the Son shining through the message. Well, despite that, the Father has determined that those who are His elect will see the Son for who He is and will respond in faith. Now, how does that happen? How does a person come to discern, spiritually discern the truth about Jesus, to see the Son in the way that John 6.40 is talking about? Well, in one word, what enables them to see the Son in that way is regeneration. Regeneration. That is being born again. Regenerated. By the power of God. <clears throat> the only way that someone comes to see the truth about the Son is by being supernaturally awakened by the power of God to see it. I'm not going to say that. The only way that any of us come to discern and see the Son savingly is if the Spirit of God blows upon us and causes us to be born again first. Right? You, can, you can hold up a, a fantastic painting in front of a dead body, and that dead body will never be able to see it. But you give that dead person life, you bring them to life, and all of a sudden they can see the beauty of that painting. In a similar way, it's the same way with Christians. Similar way. The Father comes and He causes us to be born again. He brings us out of our spiritual deadness and gives us new life in the name of His Son. The resurrection life of Christ flowing into us, 1 Peter 5 says. Or 1, excuse me, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says. That we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. When the new life of Christ floods into our souls, it causes us to come alive spiritually. And then when we become alive spiritually, we can then see spiritual realities as they are. We can discern the truth about Christ. We can see the glory of God shining from His face. A glory that we could never have seen before and we never did see before. No matter how much we read the Bible. No matter how much preaching we listened to. That's what regeneration is. It's a powerful awakening of our souls to see and experience new spiritual life 
through the resurrecting power of the living God. What that means is it's, regeneration is not a response to our faith or it's not a fruit of us believing. You don't believe and then become born again. You're born again and that's why you believe. I love much about what took place under Billy Graham. Some of you think that he's like arch enemy number one in my mind. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. But he was dead wrong. He was absolutely wrong when he said that you can be born again just by choosing to believe. Regeneration is, is the powerful moving of God upon your soul. It's not some decision that you made. This is what Paul means when he talks about our conversion not being according to the wisdom of man or, or convincing words, but in the power of the Spirit of God. It's God causing us to be born again. This is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus, isn't it? We've already seen this in John 3. How do we come to see, to truly see spiritual realities? Well, in John 3, 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking that he did see spiritual realities. That he did see spiritual realities as they are. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one could do the things you're doing unless God were with him. And how does Jesus respond in John 3? He simply says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, you don't see anything yet. You don't truly perceive the reality of who I am yet. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. God's will is for his chosen people to come to salvation by seeing the truth, by recognizing the truth about his son. But the only way they're going to be able to do that is by being born again so that they can see it. We see the same thing in Paul, what Paul was arguing in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign... And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, there are three groups of people mentioned in that verse, in those verses, right? You got the Jews, and what are they trying to, what are they asking for before they will believe? Signs. You've got the Greeks, and what are their thoughts about the gospel? It's foolishness. And then you've got this group that Paul refers to as the called. What do they see in the gospel? When the gospel is preached to them and Jesus Christ is publicly presented to them through the heralding of the message of salvation in his name, what do they see in that message? They see the power of God and they see the wisdom of God. Now what enabled them to see that? What was different about them that allowed them to see it and distinguish them from everyone else. They were called. They were powerfully and divinely summoned by God to see the truth. That's why they are the called. Or you see this, that classic text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. To, to see, to have your eyes open means that you have your mind unblinded and you have your heart illuminated by the power of God. Right? Because Paul says here, 
that that doesn't happen to everybody, that there are some people who, when they hear the preaching of the gospel, that gospel continues to be veiled to them. The significance of the gospel is hidden to them. There's, there's something that has blinded their minds that is keeping them from seeing the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And what is that thing that is blinding their minds? What does Paul say it is? You have to go to the next verse probably for you to know it. The God of this world has done what to their minds? Blinded them. He's blinded their minds to keep them from believing so that they won't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's a blindness on the minds of people in the world who don't respond to the gospel of Christ. They don't see the glory of God in it. They don't understand the significance. They don't sense the hope. They don't have any, any stirrings in their heart about their need for salvation and about the sufficiency of Christ to be their Savior. There, there's no acknowledgement of that. They're just blind to all of it, and therefore they don't respond to it. But what happens in the lives of those who do respond? What makes them see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ? What enables them to have the gospel not veiled to their eyes? Well, we see that in verse 6. That there are some whom the Father guarantees and will, and will ensure that they see the truth. And how does He do that? He enables them to see the truth by speaking that truth of the light of His Son into the darkness of their hearts. Not just into their minds where they can recite the facts of the gospel, but driving those facts down into their hearts so that they're made new by that gospel. That there's this regenerating, powerful work of God that comes through the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners that God causes to be effective in their hearts. It brings power with it in their hearts. And when they hear that message, they sense and they see, they perceive, they respond to the glory of God revealed in that message. That's what causes someone to become a believer. That's what enables them to see the truth about Christ. It's the work of God in them that enables them to see the Son. And the reason why the Father does this is because that's the Father's will. He's not going to go back on what He has willed to do in His chosen people. He's not going to provide them salvation in Christ Jesus, His Son, and then hide the reality of that salvation from them. He's going to enable them to see it. Jesus affirms this in many other passages. Matthew 16, 17. Who, who enabled Peter to discern the truth about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So who was responsible for Peter seeing the truth about Jesus? His own wisdom? His own ability to perceive the truth? His tenacity to keep wrestling at it until he gets it? No. It's the Father revealing the glory of His Son to the mind and heart of Peter that enabled him to perceive. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in John 6. What, what, enables, uh, uh, what enables people to come to Jesus for salvation? John 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what enables them to come? It's the drawing of the Father. John 6, what guarantees that the sinners whom God has chosen to save will come to the Son? The Father teaching them, right? 
The Father teaching their hearts the truth about the Son in such a way that they have to respond to it by coming. Irresistible grace awakening them to the truth in such a way that they can no longer go back to the lie. They have to move forward to that which is true. It's the Father's will to save His elect people by working within their hearts to enable them to see the truth about His Son. And by the way, this is, this is why the Father will only save sinners in connection with the preaching of the gospel. Because that is how we are enabled to see the Son in our day. Jesus isn't walking around among us anymore. Where, where do we have the presentation of the Son of God and what God has revealed to us through Him? We have it in the Scriptures. We have it summarized and contained for us in that message of the gospel, right? The Son of God came. He lived that perfect life. He died for sinners in their place under the judgment of God, and He rose again on their behalf. It's the Father's good pleasure to save sinners, but He chooses to save sinners through the preaching of the gospel by which Christ is publicly portrayed to them. Galatians 3.1, if you want to look up that reference. And that makes, pre- that makes the preaching of the gospel absolutely necessary. <clears throat> because that's the only way Jesus Christ can be publicly portrayed as crucified in our day, through the heralding of the message of the cross, or the word of the cross. And as that message goes out into all the world, and, and among our families, and in our workplaces, and in our communities, the Father will enable His elect people to see and to behold the glory of Christ contained in that message. Right, this, is, this is what makes missions uh, not, a, not a, a false hope. Missions will succeed. Why? Because the Father has an elect people whom He will call out of their sin through the preaching of the gospel. This is why a missionary is one who goes forth preaching that gospel. And God uses that gospel to bring in His elect people. No, not everybody's going to see it. No, not everyone's going to respond savingly to that message. But because this is what the Father's will is, the elect will respond to that message. This is what gives heart to the Adoniram Judsons, right? Who, Who read the book? Who read the book, To the Golden Shore? Amen. Three hands, I see. Anybody else? Four, four, maybe? Yeah. This is how you can endure seven years of losing children, losing uh, wives, having no visible fruit from the preaching of the gospel to speak of for seven years. This is how you can continue to endure in the work of missions, knowing that your labors are not in vain. Because eventually, if you don't give up and continue working for the glory of God, you're going to reap a harvest. The Lord's going to bless that word, that message that goes forth, and you're going to see sinners come to salvation in Christ. That's what, makes, that's what makes your efforts at evangelism in your families, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, to the lost person in the store. That's what makes all of your efforts to evangelize them. That's what guarantees that it will be successful if you keep moving forward and don't lose heart. You have, you have lost people that you want to see saved, right? Aren't there lost members in your family? I mean... Listen, let's just be real. We don't want them to be saved as much as we ought. And the reason for that is because we have lost 
a perspective or some sense of the glory of what it means to be saved. So, so that issue aside, let's work on our own hearts. Let's pursue the Lord. Let's have a renewed sense of what we've been saved from so that when we go to speak to others about salvation, we're speaking out of something of substance and experience. Right? So, so that issue aside, you have lost people that you want to see saved. How are you going to see them saved? Well, you got two things to do. Number one, you appeal to the sovereign God to open their eyes so that they would be saved. You pray that the Lord would save them. You know, and I brought this up here because Arminians will often look at people who believe the things I believe about God's sovereignty and salvation and and, and election, and they'll say, well, why pray? Why pray if God's already chosen those who are going to be saved? Why are you going to pray for them? God's going to do it. He's already chosen who he's going to save. Well, my response to the Arminian who brings that up with me is always the same. Well, why do you pray that they would be saved? Because God, according to your view, God can't do anything more than what he's already done. He's, he's given them perfect salvation in Christ. He has commanded the gospel to go out as an invitation, and now it's up to them to decide whether they want to come or not. So God can't do anything more than He's already done for that sinner. It's up to the sinner now. So why pray to God for their salvation? No, we believe that God is the one who has the power to save. And that's why we pray to God for our lost family members and loved ones. We pray to God for them so that God would open their eyes to help them see the truth of Christ. So we pray, number one. And then, number two, we keep speaking the truth of Christ to them because that's going to be the means that God uses to bring them to salvation. It's always so tempting to stop doing that. To think to ourselves, well, they've heard the gospel countless numbers of times. It's, is this time going to be any different than all the others? I've already talked to them about the truth, and they've rejected it. I don't want to go through that rejection again. And more than that, I don't want to say something to them that drives them further away. It's very tempting to give in to those kinds of thoughts. But what we need to make sure that we do is we guard ourselves against believing those lies. Don't stop preaching the gospel. Don't believe the lie that is being foisted upon us, even by the so-called church in our day, that the gospel no longer has the power to save people in our day the way it saved people 2,000 years ago. It's got to be repackaged. It has to be rebranded. It needs to be represented to them in a way that they can tolerate it because people are somehow different in our day than they were 2,000 years ago. That's baloney. That's absolute insanity and nonsense. You understand that, right? That's crazy talk. Now, you remember that, that, that through the gospel... What is God doing to the wisdom of the world? He's shaming it. Through the gospel, are there many noble, are there many wise, are there many mighty people who are being called to salvation in Christ? 1 Corinthians 1 tells us no. 
It's not about the wisdom of the world. It's not about having the new gadgets and the new methods and the new packaging of the gospel that's going to cause someone to believe it. It's the power of God uh, inflaming the heart of the sinner to understand and hear the gospel that's being preached. That's what's going to save them. So quit being ashamed in preaching the gospel. Just, Just get over it. You are a peculiar people. You belong to another world. Your citizenship is in heaven. That means you are going to be a stranger. You are going to be in exile in this place. So just embrace it and just get over it. Like, yes, I'm going to be strange. I'm going to be opposed. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be slandered. Praise the Lord. <laughs> because that means my name is, 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 is in heaven. right? My inheritance is in glory with Christ. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rest upon me, Peter says. When we stop being ashamed and just start preaching the gospel, I truly believe we will see God do a wonderful, powerful work of salvation in our day because that's the message he uses to bring sinners to salvation. It's not our creativity. It's not our new methods. It's it's simply the proclamation and the heralding of the truth of the gospel of Christ. That's how we we lift the sun high for people to see, right? Because they have to see him in order to be saved. We hold up Christ so that they can see him. And we leave it to God to do the work of opening their eyes to truly see him. So that's, we got to see him if we're going to be saved. But as we we come to a close here, if that's what it means to see the sun, to have the spiritual perception of your heart awakened and enabled to behold the truth about Jesus, then what does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to believe in the Son? Well, first of all, let me say that believing in the Son is not merely about having a checklist of things that you claim to believe. Having all the right doctrines ticked off and like, yep, I believe that, I believe that. Apostles' Creed, got it. Nicene Creed, yep. 1689 Confession, yeah, I affirm all that. Well, there are people who can state that and can claim that and yet not have true belief in the truths that are stated in those things. So it's not merely having a checklist of things that you claim to believe. It's not merely having a mental assent or a mental acknowledgement that something is true. Nor is it a blind wish or a leap into the dark, hoping that something's going to be under your feet after you jump and not let you fall. That's, that's not what believing in the Son is. First of all, notice that when it says, he who sees the Son and believes in him, notice that's a verb, not a noun. So what does that tell us? What do verbs communicate to us? Action. Believing is an action. That is, it's a response of sincere trust and confidence and what you have become convinced of and now know to be true. So you see the truth of Christ. And what does that do? That, that embeds within you a conviction that Christ is true. And how are you to respond to that? You're to respond to that by believing. Having a response of sincere trust and confidence of what you are now able to see about the Son of God. Now, many believers aren't clear about this. I I want to be quick here, but I want you to understand this difference. There is a small but very important difference between faith and believing. To have faith, a noun, 
means that you have an inner assurance and conviction that Jesus Christ is true. That means that inside you are convinced that Jesus is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, and that no one will come to the Father except through Him. That internally you know that's true. That's faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 But to believe in Christ means that you act upon that conviction. It means that you respond appropriately to what you now know to be true about him. So, or in in the words of of John, or in the the language of John 6:37, it means that you come to the Son. You have a response of of action in moving towards Jesus. I got a quote here from J.C. Ryle. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over that. But if you want to know, uh, actually, you know what? I'm not. I'm not going to skip over that because it's good. When J.C. Ryle, when he was asking, what does it mean to come to the sun? He says, it means, coming to the sun means that movement of the soul which takes place when a man, feeling his sins and finding out that he cannot save himself, hears of Christ and applies to Christ and trusts in Christ and lays hold on Christ and leans all of his weight upon Christ for salvation. See, it's this movement of the soul to cast yourself in hope upon what you now see to be true in Jesus. He says, when this happens, a man is said in Scripture language to come to Christ. And listen, a person is not brought to salvation until they actually and wholeheartedly do that. A person is not saved until they actually believe upon the truth they've now been awakened to see. You agree with that? This one instruction of Christ here in verse 40 shines the spotlight on human responsibility and salvation. If you want to be saved... If the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you now see your need of salvation and you see Jesus Christ as God's appointed Savior for you, then you must actually come to Christ in order to receive salvation from His hand. He will not save anyone who will not come to Him to be saved. In humility, coming to Him in humility, coming to Him in brokenness of heart, coming to Him in true repentance and in true hope that He not only can save you, but He's willing to save you. right? Because that's what we see in the message of the Gospel. We see Jesus Christ being willing to save sinners, right? That's why He came. That's why He was born of a virgin. That's why He lived a life of suffering for us. That's why He embraced the the, the Via De La Rosa, the, 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 the suffering way. He embraced that for us sinners so that we would know He's willing to save us. This is why He came to teach us about the way of God. To to instruct us in how to follow God and how to know Him and how to live a life for Him. It's because He's willing for us to be saved. And most important, we know it because He embraced the cross for us, despising its shame, but for the joy set before Him endured it. The joy of our salvation. So we know he's willing. We know he's, and by his resurrection, we know he's able to save. 
And so the question is simply this, are you willing to come to Christ to be saved? Do you see the truth about Christ and will you come to him to be saved? If that is you, then you are among those whom the Father has given to his Son. You are among the elect. And you should rejoice in the God of your salvation and what he's done for you. Can I end on just an illustration from Pilgrim's Progress? When I was writing this, I I was reminded of the beginning, the opening of that book. Uh, You remember when Christian is awakened by the book to see that he's living in the city of destruction and to see that it's destined for that city to be destroyed under the wrath of God. He begins to run away from the city, but he doesn't know where to go. Right? And so this guy evangelist comes up to him and he begins talking with him about the way of salvation, the way to uh, the celestial city, the way out of the city of destruction and unto the place where he can find salvation. And he points across this great long field and he says, do you see that yonder gate over there? Do you see that, that gate over there? And Christian strains and looks across the field and he says, I, I, I can't see it. And then evangelist responds and he says, well, then do you see the light that's shining around that gate? Do you see the light that's shining out over there? And Christian goes, I think so. I think I see that. And so evangelist says, well, then you keep that light in your eye and you run straight to it and you go knock on the gate and they'll let you in. This is the response that Jesus is calling us to in John 6.40. Do you see the light of Jesus shining way off over there? If you see the light, then run to the light. Flee to the light. Flee to Christ for refuge. Hebrews 6.18. Have you done that? Do you flee to Him for refuge? Let me tell you what, Christian. If you've truly done that, then you're going to continue doing that the rest of your life. Because Colossians 2.6, as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so also we are charged to walk in Him. We don't walk in Him any differently than we come to Him for salvation. We don't live the Christian life any differently than we come to Him to be saved. It's the way of repentance. It's the way of faith. It's the way of fleeing to Christ constantly and for refuge, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. If you have not not fled to Christ for refuge, then I urge you on behalf of God to do so this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Children, listen to me. Today is the day, everyone look at me. Today is the day of salvation. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Do you understand? I'm talking to you because I love you. I don't want any one of you to be lost. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear God's voice calling you to come to His Son, then you don't delay. You get up and you run to the Son. Do you understand? And you run believing that if you flee for refuge to Jesus, Jesus will never reject you. Do you understand me? Don't assume that you're going to go to heaven because your parents are saved. Don't assume that you're going to go to heaven because you go to this church. You personally must run to Jesus if you're going to be saved. Adults, that goes for you as well. Flee to him. He is a kind and merciful Savior, and he will receive all who come to him. So don't delay. Amen. Father, please... 
I pray you would bless the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of the message preached and in spite of the foolishness of the preacher. God, would you please save, save a people for your own possession and let us see the glory of salvation among us. Help us rejoice in you, Lord, and give you praise. You are the God of our salvation. Help us wait for you all the day. Lord, let us who seek you rejoice and be glad in your salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you are good and you are ready to forgive all who call upon you. So help us call upon you in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, uh, let me end on a benediction from, from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. May you go in the peace, love, and joy of that great hope. Amen.